Here, in the cloisters of Westminster Abbey, is an inky black tomb. The name on the stone almost worn away with time. This is the final resting place of Afra Ben. When she died in 1689, this extraordinary woman had achieved many firsts in her life. The first English woman to make a living as a writer. Britain's first successful female playwright and the country's first lady novelist. But that is not why we're paying homage here today. No, because Afra Ben was Britain's first female secret agent. My name is Mark Zakian and I'm with Laura Adams, fellow Blue Badge guide and creator of the excellent Women Inspire website. And today we are investigating women and war. From Celtic killer queens to international women of mystery. From iron maidens to mistresses of disguise. So how did Afra Ben become a spy for Britain's bawdiest king? Find out more later in this podcast. We are at Westminster Bridge, beneath an iconic statue of a warrior woman riding a chariot. Arms raised, spear in hand, this is Boudicca, the queen leader of the Celtic Iceni tribe. When the Romans conquered Britain in 43 AD, Boudicca's husband, King Prasetagus, formed an alliance with the invaders. When Prasetagus died, to maintain the truce, the king bequeathed half his lands to his daughters and to protect his people, passed the other half to Roman Emperor Nero. With Nero involved, you knew there'd be a fiddle. The Romans demanded the entire Iceni kingdom and sent in centurions to secure their claim. The Iceni resisted. As punishment, Queen Boudicca was stripped, flogged and her daughters were raped. Driven by anger, Boudicca joined forces with a neighbouring tribe to take vengeance on the Romans, exhorting the Celts to fight for freedom and liberty. The Queen led an army of 100,000 to the Roman colony of Camulodunum, modern-day Colchester. They destroyed the town, killing an entire infantry regiment and decapitating the great bronze statue of Emperor Nero. Her army then made towards London. News of the rebellion reached the Roman commander in Britain, Suetonius. He was fighting the Celts in North Wales, but hurried south to confront the Iceni. After witnessing the terrible fate of Colchester, he abandoned London to the rebel army. Boudicca's army burnt Roman Londinium to the ground. With the great city razed, they moved north and laid waste to Verulanium, modern-day St Albans. Roman historians wrote that the Britons took no prisoners, slaughtering by gibbet, fire or cross. The noblest women were impaled on spikes, body parts sliced off and sewn into their mouths. The Roman commander Suetonius regrouped his legions, rallying a force of 10,000 men. In the final battle, Boudicca's army was crushed by the superior imperial legions. Despite this victory, the Celtic rebellion almost persuaded Nero to abandon Britain. 
the defeated warrior queen poisoned herself. To this day there are many legends about the final resting place of Boudicca. Some say she is buried at Stonehenge or at a magic mound in Hampstead, even under a platform at King's Cross Station. Communing with Harry Potter. But her great memorial is this Victorian statue here on Westminster Bridge. It shows the rebel queen accompanied by her daughters, mounted on a scythe chariot drawn by two rearing horses. A London statue dedicated to a woman who destroyed London. In the late summer of 1595, here in Greenwich, two great leaders came face to face. One was the most famous queen of British history, Gloriana, the goddess heavenly, Queen Elizabeth I. The other was the most extraordinary Irish woman you've never heard of. Clan queen, matriarch and pirate, Gronya or Grace O'Malley. So how did the Gaelic piratess, branded a she-wolf brigand by English forces, come to meet as an equal with England's queen? O'Malley was born in Clue Bay on the windy and wild West Irish Atlantic coast. Her father was a chieftain of the O'Mail clan who dominated the seas from their shoreline castles, making their living by controlling fishing and pirating merchant ships. As a young girl, O'Malley yearned to join her father on Spanish trading expeditions. Told that a sea ship was no place for a girl, that her long hair would catch in the ship's ropes, she cut most of it off, convincing her father to take her along and earning her the nickname Granya Mahol, meaning grace with the cropped hair. Age 16, O'Malley was married off to a local chieftain, the all-brawn and no-brains Donal O'Flaherty. Grace bore him three children, but when her husband was killed in an ambush by neighbouring Irish clansmen, O'Malley returned to her Clare Island family home. From here, Grace built her maritime empire, commanding hundreds of rugged sailors and pirating the seas from Spain to Scotland. On one occasion, she had word of a ship that had floundered. Searching to plunder the wreck, she saved a shipwrecked sailor and took him as her lover. When he was murdered by local clansmen, O'Malley attacked and killed his assassins and captured their castle. Chieftain O'Malley thrived. She married again, giving birth to a son at sea. But by pirating merchant English ships, she had come to the attention of her nemesis, Sir Richard Bingham. The English overlord imprisoned O'Malley's sons and her half-brother and stalked Grace by land and sea. To save her family from English wrath, she petitioned Elizabeth I and was granted safe passage to England. Arriving in Greenwich to meet the monarch, Grace carried a concealed dagger. When the guards discovered the weapon, they were about to take her away. O'Malley quickly explained that she carried the weapon for her own safety. Elizabeth appeared untroubled. Grace spoke no English, so the pair communicated in their only common language, Latin. So the two women, aged in their sixties, spoke for hours. 
Both had usurped a male world with sheer determination and courage and had prevailed. Each had a lifetime of experience and power. Both had kept their followers loyal throughout. Elizabeth was impressed by the warrior woman and agreed to remove Bingham from his position in Ireland. In return, O'Malley would stop supporting the Irish rebellion against the English. A truce was declared. Historians believe that Grace died at Rockfleet Castle in 1603, the same year as Elizabeth I. The Irish woman was buried in the abbey on Clare Island, where she had learned to read and write as a child. As a pirate, O'Malley was largely written out of Irish history. Grace lived an adventurous life, rare for a woman in her time, upholding the O'Malley clan motto, powerful by land and by sea. We're back on the trail of Afra Ben at St. James Palace birthplace and principal residence to Charles II. Afra was introduced to the court of Charles II by the mysterious Colonel Thomas Culpepper. He had campaigned for the restoration of exiled King Charles to the throne and was a key player in the Royal Intelligence Network. He was also the subject of gossip for scandalously eloping with a woman above his station. Though nobody could be more scandalous than the merry monarch himself, Charles II. With 13 illegitimate children from his seven mistresses, he was the poster king for libertinism and pleasurable pursuits. The 20-something alluring Afra Ben fitted right into the Restoration Court, her clever personality making such an impression that in 1666 she received her first assignment as a spy. Agent 160, codenamed Astrea, was sent to the Netherlands to locate soldier William Scott. Her mission, to convince him to turn spy for Charles II. A dangerous assignment as England and the Dutch were at war. Astraea is the Greek goddess of innocence and virginity. Somewhat ironic as Aphra's job was to act as a honeypot, seducing soldier Scott. England's restoration, Marta Hari. The mission proved difficult. With only £50 to complete the operation, Afra ran out of money and fell into debt. Her support from London disappeared, probably during the confusion of the Great Fire of London. Or it may simply have been that the Crown did not reward failure. In the end, the choice of target turned out to be a poor one. William Scott's father Thomas had been executed for being one of the members of Parliament who had voted for Charles I's death. Scott was not going to work for the royal regime that murdered his father. It's likely that Scott betrayed Afra to the Dutch, leaving her in a desperate and dangerous flight back to London. So the 17th century female James Bond, facing a life in debtor's prison, turned to an equally unlikely profession to save herself from incarceration. Writing. We're visiting an unremarkable, decayed gravestone in Kensal Green Cemetery. The faded dedication reads, Dr James Barry, Inspector General of Hospitals, died 1865. Barry passed away at home in London, aged 75. The charwoman charged with laying out Barry's body was not paid, so she went to the press with an extraordinary story. 
Dr. James Barry, respected military surgeon, was actually a woman. The body even had marks suggesting that Barry had given birth. Barry was born Margaret Bulky around 1789 in Ireland, in an era when women were barred from formal education. While still a teenager, Margaret was raped. The resulting baby was raised by Margaret's mother, Mary Ann Bulky. When Margaret was in her late teens, her mother took her to live in London, where they joined up with Mary Ann's brother, James Barry, a successful, respected artist. Family friends, impressed by young Margaret's intelligence, hatched a plan for her to follow a career in medicine. Artist James Barry died in 1806. Three years later, clad in an overcoat, worn at all times regardless of the weather, and wearing three-inch high shoe inserts, Margaret now presented herself as James Barry. Barry enrolled in medical school and altered his age to match his boyish looks. Rumours flew about the student's short stature, high voice, slight build and smooth skin. Surely he was too young to be in medical school, but Barry was undaunted. Barry received a degree in medicine aged 22. He served with the British Army in South Africa, where he met the governor, Lord Somerset. The two grew close and Barry moved into a private apartment at his residence. Rumours circulated about the relationship and an anonymous sign was hung up accusing Somerset of having sexual relations with Barry. The scandal led to investigations, but both parties were exonerated. Perhaps to appear masculine, or maybe because it was his nature, Barry was known for his short, hot temper. Patients, superiors, army captains, and even the great nurse Florence Nightingale were on the receiving end of his anger. He threw medicine bottles and even participated in a duel. Barry's medical skills were unprecedented. A highly skilled surgeon, he performed the first successful caesarean section with both mother and child surviving. During his 10-year posting to Cape Town, Barry worked to improve sanitation and treated both rich and poor, the colonists and slaves, all as equals. In 1857, he reached the rank of Inspector General in charge of military hospitals, equivalent to Brigadier General, and continued his fight for proper sanitation, better food and decent medical care for all. When Dr Barry died, his last wishes were to be buried in the clothes he passed in, without his body being washed. Wishes that were not followed. The secret was made public after an exchange of letters between the register office and Barry's doctor, who signed the death certificate. The doctor wrote, It is none of my business whether Dr James Barry was male or female. A statement Barry himself would have agreed with. We're at Leadenhall Street in London, under the metal modern Lloyds building, once the location of the offices of the East India Company. The company was a vast trading enterprise with a royal charter, thousands of employees and a private army of 260,000, twice the size of Britain's standing forces. It ruled British colonial India. In the 1850s, the Indian people rose up against the East India Company 
Soldiers, native rulers and thousands of ordinary Indians battled for independence from Britain. One of the leaders of the rebellion was the Rani of Jansi. The Rani, or Hindu queen, was born on the banks of the river Ganges in Uttar Pradesh. She was educated at Peshwa's court, where her father worked, learning skills normally reserved for boys such as martial arts, sword fighting and horse riding. The teenage Rani was married to the Maharaja of Jansi, 20 years her senior. She was much more dynamic than him, practicing with the palace weapons. She even drilled and trained a regiment of women. After the Maharaja's death, the British seized the Jansi kingdom and evicted the Rani from the royal fort. Mutiny broke out. The Jansi fort was besieged by Indian rebels and every British man, woman and child killed. The Rani returned to her fort and raised an army of 14,000 volunteers and 15,000 Indian soldiers. When the English troops attacked the Jansi fort, the warrior queen was outnumbered. The Rani and her soldiers escaped to a nearby town. The British attacked again. And the Rani of Jansi was finally defeated and killed in battle. Demoralised by her death, the Indians ended the rebellion. The British commanding officer wrote of Rani that she was remarkable in her bravery, cleverness and perseverance, the most dangerous of all the rebel leaders, a sort of Indian Joan of Arc. Aside from royals and mythical characters, there are fewer than 20 public statues of women in London. One of them is of the nurse and war hero Edith Cavill. Young Edith trained to be a nurse in the 1890s. Her matron mentor at the Royal London Hospital was a friend of Florence Nightingale, the founder of modern nursing. Edith joined the international movement to improve the standards of nursing and was recruited to a nursing school in Brussels. At the outbreak of World War I in 1914, the Germans invaded the city. Edith began sheltering British and Allied soldiers, hiding them from the Germans and funneling them out of occupied Belgium to the neutral Netherlands. The German authorities became increasingly suspicious of the nurse's actions, fuelled by her outspokenness. She was arrested, betrayed by a Frenchman who was later convicted as a collaborator. Cavill was held in prison for 10 weeks, the last two in solitary confinement. She made no secret of the fact that she had been instrumental in helping 75 soldiers and 100 civilians escape to the frontier, having sheltered most of them at her own house. At her court-martial, Cavill declared that the soldiers thanked her in writing after arriving safely in Britain. The German court-martial condemned Cavill to death for war treason. Some people believe that Cavill was recruited by the British Secret Intelligence Service, but turned away from her espionage duties in order to help Allied soldiers. The British government have always denied that she was a spy. The night before her execution, she told the Anglican chaplain, I am thankful to have had these 10 weeks of quiet to get ready. I expected my sentence and I believe it was just. Standing as I do in view of God and eternity, I realise that patriotism is not enough. I must have no hatred or bitterness towards anyone. 
These lines are inscribed on her statue here near Trafalgar Square in London. Her final words were, Tell my loved ones that my soul is safe and that I am glad to die for my country. 16 men, forming two firing squads, carried out the sentence pronounced at 7am on the 12th of October, 1915. Belgian women buried her next to Saint-Gilles prison. After the war, her body was taken back to Britain for memorial service at Westminster Abbey and then transferred to Norwich. Her actions saved the lives of more than 200 Allied soldiers. On the 9th of March 1914, suffragette leader Mrs Pankhurst was smuggled into St Andrew's Hall in Glasgow, hidden in a laundry basket. Pankhurst emerged from the rear of the hall, threw off her cloak to begin her speech in front of an audience of 3,000 people. As her words, Equal political justice, equal social justice, equal justice for men and women, rang out across the auditorium. 50 policemen burst into the hall and rushed the stage, truncheons at the ready. Before they could lay hands on Pankhurst, the police were confronted by 25 women with Indian clubs, swinging with precision and skill. These were the Suffragitsus, a team of bodyguards trained by Edith Garrod, the Western world's first female martial arts instructor. Garrod was a 4 foot 11 pocket dynamo who studied the eclectic martial art of Bartitsu. No sniggering a sort of Victorian MMA, combining pugilism, Japanese martial arts, cane fighting and French kickboxing. She later learned jiu-jitsu from the first teacher outside Japan at his school in Golden Square in London, Soho. When he left England, Edith and her husband took over the school. In 1913, the government passed the notorious Cat and Mouse Act. This allowed suffragette hunger strikers to be released from prison, only for them to be re-arrested when they had regained their strength. The Women's Social and Political Union responded by setting up a dedicated unit to protect Emmeline Pankhurst and other leaders from arrest. Garrod ran classes for this suffragette self-defence club, teaching women how to bring great burly cowards nearly twice your size to their feet and make them howl for mercy. Garrod was rarely involved in these frays herself. Her position in the organisation was too important to risk her being arrested and imprisoned. But there is more than one record of her flipping cops weighing at least 180 pounds. She said, Woman is exposed to many perils nowadays because so many who call themselves men are not worthy of that exalted title and it is her duty to learn how to defend herself. Edith died in 1971, aged 99. In 2011, an Islington People's Plaque was placed outside her former home here in Thornhill Square, North London. The blue plaque on this Victorian terraced house here at Burnley Road in Stockwell reads Violette Zabo, secret agent. Violette was born in 1921 to an English father and French mother growing up in South London. 
Young Violette was energetic and sporty. She excelled at athletics, gymnastics and shooting, her ex-soldier father teaching her how to fire a gun. She left school aged 14, taking jobs as a shop girl, first as a corsetier in Kensington, then at Woolworths in Oxford Street, before working at the perfume counter at Brixton's Bon Marche store. On Bastille Day in 1940, her mother asked her to find a French soldier to spend the day with the family. She invited Etienne Zabo. The couple instantly hit it off, falling in love and quickly marrying. In 1942, three months after Violette had given birth to a daughter, Etienne was killed, leading his men in battle at El Alamein. He never set eyes on his child. Devastated by Etienne's death, Violette joined the Special Operations Executive, an underground army waging a secret war in enemy-occupied Europe. Her paramilitary training included firearms, demolition, night navigation, cryptography, escape tactics and parachute jumps. Only five feet tall, she was said to be as strong as the next man. Violette's first mission was as a message courier in Normandy. She was parachuted into France, her secret identity issued to her by special ops, concealed in the code poem, The Life That I Have. On her next assignment, she travelled to Rouen to investigate the capture of a special ops wireless operator. On the 8th of June, 1944, Violette was part of a team of agents dropped into France on a mission to build a new communications circuit in the Limoges area. Violette was travelling by car with one of her colleagues when the pair came upon a German roadblock. They tried to escape, but Violette's ankle, injured during parachute training, gave way. Unable to escape, she was captured, taken to Limoges prison, then on to Paris to the German SS headquarters where she was questioned by the Gestapo. They knew she was a secret agent. The Nazis deported Violette to Germany. Chained to another prisoner, their transport train was bombarded by Allied aircraft. In the confusion, she managed to get water to her fellow prisoners. At the notorious Ravensbrück concentration camp, where 92,000 women died, Violette and her fellow captives faced disease, starvation, and violence. Women were regularly placed in solitary confinement where they were brutally assaulted. In February 1945, aged 23, Violette Sabo was killed in Ravensbrook Execution Alley, forced to kneel on the ground and shot in the back of the head. In 1946, Violette's four-year-old daughter Tanya collected a George Cross from King George VI on behalf of her mother. She was only the second woman to receive this medal. The French awarded her the Croix de Guerre. Violette and her husband are the most decorated married couple of World War II. Violette's code poem, devised by the writer and chief cryptographer of special operations, Leo Marx, has become a much-loved work. The romantic and tragic memorial to Violette Zabo. The life that I have is all that I have, and the life that I have is yours. 
The love that I have of the life that I have is yours and yours and yours. A sleep I shall have, a rest I shall have, and death will be but a pause. For the years I shall have in the long green grass are yours and yours and yours. This British Guild of Tourist Guides podcast was written by Mark Zakian and co-hosted with Laura Adams from Women Inspire. The music was demised to shield by Ghost Rifter from soundcloud.com forward slash Ghost Rifter official and licensed under Creative Commons 3.0. For tours and information about Blue Badge Guides, visit britainsbestguides.org.